Here it is, my number seven pick for 1992. It's Poison Ivy. It's the first of two erotic thrillers in my top ten. And after Fatal Attraction, horror just seemed to get very sexy. And yeah, horror is exactly what I've called this. If you're throwing in giallos into the category of horror and rape revenge films into the category of horror and you're not putting in erotic thrillers, you just can't argue with it. I'm not going to allow it. Of course, if like Dan Martin, the practical special effects wizard, he who guested on a year in horror for the 2011 Big Hitter, where we discuss the skin I live in, and also, of course, he is the host of the Arrow Video podcast. Well, if you are much like him, and you consider that a film is not actually a horror unless there is some supernatural element to it, then by all means, my next pick will appease your wrath. But just so you know, I consider this just as worthy, hence its inclusion here. Now, Poison Ivy is a movie that puts me on edge. Every time that I watch it, I feel like I've been through the ringer. When is your best friend not your best friend? Let me answer that. When she is Drew Barrymore in the 90s, that's when. As horror fans, we know the score. We don't trust anyone from the off. Respect has to be earned. And by all means, you can run a twist through us later on in the running time. That's fine. But with Poison Ivy, from the very off, we know that she is a wrong'un. We just don't know how. Not yet. This one is all about the dread of waiting to see just how this thing is going to play out. And as I say, every few years, I'm going to watch this thing again. And it's the same old thing. It makes me feel anxious. It's one of the only films that really puts me on edge. Now, I know that director Kat Shea, she is out of the game. But for my money, she never bettered this one. And of course, I know that this film has a little bit of a rep. Just like with the rest of Kat's filmography. Just like with Strip to Kill and Carry to the Rage. This one is a guilty pleasure of sorts. A love to hate watch for stacks of fans. But. I just wish she was still directing. She's so good at creating tension. Uh, yeah, this is Poison Ivy. What are you busted for? Uh, I gotta keep a certain grade point average. I'm slipping in biology. My name's Sylvie Cooper. Like most 15-year-olds, what Sylvie Cooper wanted more than anything else was a best friend. Everybody hates me. Oh, well, everybody hates me, too. Do you want to come over? Someone to talk to. Wow, this is great. Someone to understand her. Oh, Ivy, this is my mom, Georgie. Till death. Someone like Ivy. It's nice and cool in here. Um, I missed my ride. No. Dad, she's my best friend. But Ivy didn't just want a friend. Ivy wanted more. I hope that when I die, I'll have owned a sports car, had a family, 
a home. And she'd do anything to get it. Hello, Mr. Cooper. Care for anything? Get out. What the hell are you doing in my mom's car? Won't ever happen again. Please, stop! Babe, I want you where you say Are you accusing me of something? Why did you do something? No, Fred, come here. No, Fred, come here. <laughs> together now we can all be a family and here is that letterbox synopsis what ivy wants ivy gets a seductive teen befriends an introverted high school student and schemes her way into the lives of her wealthy family Now, I want to talk Drew Barrymore, but we've already done that back when we covered Scream. So, hold up, hold up. Why not shoot for someone else, right? Let's go with Tom Skerritt this time around. Now, in Poison Ivy, he plays one of the most rubbish and naive dads ever on the screen. To the point where I question the believability of some of his choices. And then I think, oh yeah, he's a fella. He's got a penis. So, of course he's going to do that. And unfortunately for men with penises, they tend not to worry about the consequences until later. So I get this film, it gets a pass. But I've done my top five favourite performances in horror flicks for you now, all starring Tom Skerritt. And at number five is his character Tom Preston from The Devil's Reign. And that's in 1975. Don't know why I said The Devil's Reign. Don't know why I did that. Uh, But it's not his finest hour sure but it's good to see him act alongside William Shatner it's good fun uh, and I'm saying that with a caveat and the caveat being it's not that good fun Um, in fact the first time I watched it through it bored me shitless second time not bad I'm hoping the third time reaps more rewards you might be saying well that's pretty thin pickings but get this at number four he plays the sheriff in the dead zone but he's outshone every scene by the lead scene stealer in all that he appeared in in this time, in this period, Christopher Walken. This is prime Christopher Walken territory. It's the early 80s. Sorry, Sheriff. Oh, God, it's not looking very good, is it, Mr. Scarrett? Hold on. Hold on. At number three, he plays the rubbish father figure again. This time it's in Poltergeist 3. And in this film, shit hits the fan. In fact, it hits every fan possible. And with added mirrors in just almost every scene. So you can see multiples of Tom Skerritt. He's bloody everywhere in this film. But is he good? He's all right. (laughs) I'm beginning to think this is a bad idea. At number two is Poison Ivy. And that's not bad considering what's gone before it. But... I've already mentioned it. He plays Daddy Daryl Cooper in this. And let's just say he's easily led. But truly, the only reason why I wanted to do this top five is because what's at number one? It's my very favourite performance. No matter what genre we're talking about for him. Tom Skerritt in a horror movie. His name is Dallas. Of course it is. And of course, he is the captain of the Nostromo. It's Alien. It was always going to be Alien, right? He's so amazing in this one. Every scene that he's in, 
I feel for the guy. He's doing his best. It doesn't turn out that great for him. Number one, Alien. best thing about this score is what you've just heard. It's Ivy's theme. Well, it's actually called Meet Ivy. Uh, and the score is by David Michael Frank. And I've got two issues with this score. That track accepted, of course. Uh, the first is that it is so eclectic with its song choices that it sort of fucks the flow and the tone of the movie. But the second, and again, just as important is a lot of it sounds like a Lifetime movie uh, and just by the numbers score. There's so much drama, it's so melodramatic and, if anything, a little rough around the edges, a bit boring. What is available to listen to online is a real chore to get through. And does it affect the movie? Well, yeah, I do think that it does. This one had the slick, modern sense of then and now uh, that the other erotic thriller does in my top 10, then it may well find itself being placed in a loftier spot than it is. And it's a real issue for me in this otherwise very Moorish film. This score just lets it down so much. But let's forget about it. Let's cheer up, eh? Where can you find this? Well, my DVD copy is maybe 20 years old now, something like that. Uh, and you can still find it out there for around five bucks or five dollars. But what you can't do is stream this anywhere for free. It's mad. This film deserves way more respect than it has. Um, and it's a shocker. It's a shocker. As for podcasts, the Blind Rage podcast, they do a commentary track for Poison Ivy on their October 2020 episode. And apart from a couple of sort of dirty porn type podcasts that I didn't even know existed until I started looking for this, that's about it. Massive shame as this film uh, just has so much to give. So much to give. And that's it. Poison Ivy. This movie is in the sixth position for the best horrors from my 1992 picks and I think many would say it should probably be at least a little bit higher 
But I am sure that there are other podcasts out there that you can check out for that. And when I go through all the ones that are above this in my chart, even the most steadfast horror gatekeeper out there is probably going to be able to see why I place this one here. 1992 was a pretty tight year at the top. Now I do talk to Kaya Palmer in some detail about my origin story with the film and I think it's worth pointing that out now because I'm not going to go into it in this preamble bit. But if you go in fresh, then you watch the trailer and you would definitely think that, well, this is a slasher movie. The trailer is a weird, odd choice. And the director here, Bernard Rose, I've only ever seen one of his other films, uh, and that is called Paper House, which sort of retrospectively never gets poorly reviewed. Never, ever do you see a bad review of that one. And for good reason. It shows originality and a horror craftsmanship that seems at least a decade ahead of its time. And whilst this original idea of Candyman, it came from a Clive Barker story, Bernard Rose, he did take the prose and he ran with it. Not only by including some stellar effects work, but also plotting an intricate story uh, which generated scares where there were little before. This thing is quite a spectacle. It is made for the big screen. And I've got to bring up the car parking scene here uh, where Helen seems to be both terrified and in the thralls of this deep obsessive passion all at the same time. And I especially like that blink and you'll miss it twist. Uh, it's just so nonchalant when it's revealed that Helen, she's been committed for a whole month. And yet we, the viewer, we realise this at the same time as Helen does. Just because that encounter with Candyman just knocked her for six. This... Is Candyman. Have you ever heard of Candyman? And if you look in the mirror and you say his name five times. In cities everywhere. Candyman. They whisper his name. Right. Candyman. It's just a story. Candyman. Candyman. Just a ghost story. Candyman. An entire community starts attributing the daily horrors of their lives to a mythical figure. The legend first appeared in 1890. He was attacked, mutilated, and burned to death. Poor Candyman. Helen, a woman died in there. Leave it. Everyone knows he isn't real. That's modern oral folklore. Everyone. Except Helen Lyle. Bring it up. It's safe around here. I don't scare too easy. Well, no Belvoothage. They ain't never gonna catch him. Who? Candyman. Helen. Who is that? I came for you. Do I know you? Now she is about to discover. Helen? Get out! Get out! What's behind the mystery? Sick. What's behind the legend? Listen, he's under the bed! And most terrifying of all... Come with me. What's behind the mirror? He's here. Candyman, you don't have to believe. Just beware. Right. Here's that letterbox synopsis. You don't have to believe, just 
beware. And as a side note, I just want you to know, I think that's pants. That's horrible. A terrible, terrible tagline. You don't have to believe. Just beware. Anyway, the Candyman, a murderous soul with a hook for a hand, is accidentally summoned to reality by a sceptic grad student researching the monster's myth. So, as I mentioned, Kaya Palmer, she last appeared on A Year in Horror when we dug deep on Night of the Hunter. It was a really popular episode, had loads of questions about it, and loads of people actually saying to me, thank you so much for actually mentioning it, they're going to watch it for the first time. It's what it's all about, I love that sort of thing. This time, of course, we've hit the 90s with a bang, this is a biggie. Now, Kaya is a PhD student at UCL, and she is studying the ferocious father, masculinity and fatherhood in American horror cinema. She also writes for Ghouls magazine and Moving Picture Club. And of course, I was delighted when she chose this one to chat about because it is so popular and it should be represented here, right? It should be. But who wants to hear just another opinion from a 40-something old white male again, right? Who wants that? So, as I say, I'm so glad she's here. The representation of black America at the time is pertinent when dealing with this film. And I've always felt something about it in relation to Candyman. But I just couldn't express it articulately with this one. And here it is. Does this film rest on its laurels with race? In our conversation, I believe we get some part of the way to answering that question. So, with no more ado, here is the chat about Candyman with Kaya Palmer. Kaya, how are you doing? I'm fine. How are you? Well, I'm happy we're now connected doing this. I can't believe we're talking about a film today which I couldn't leave unaddressed. Yeah, so I'm so glad that you sort of picked this one because, yeah, I tend to just say to guests, like, what do you want to do? Um, But I was like, fingers crossed, yeah, you can do this one. So I'm so glad you can because it needs mentioning when you're talking about a year like 1992. So we've talking about Candyman and what's your history with it? You just mentioned that you've only recently just seen it. Yeah. So do you know what? I, as I'm sure you know, I'm the biggest fan of folk horrors. Um, And so they're the ones that I tend to watch like willingly, right? Like, you know, Blood and Sons Claw, The Wicker Man, The the Witch, which is a bit newer and films like that. But there's been so much talk around Candyman and its legacy and how good it is. And, you know, before even Get Out in 2017, it's one of the first horror films that starts diving into race. So I thought, you know what, I'm going to watch it. I watched it about two or three months ago and it was one of the best decisions. Um, (laughs) It's kind of even dives like delves into the realms of folk horror in some ways um yeah, which yeah. is interesting right so it, yeah, no, I'm really glad that I watched it and I think it's a very interesting film that was made well before its time I think and maybe one that Jordan Peele used to influence Gal in some ways and, and the discussions of race and gender I can't see how it wasn't I'm just surprised that it took so long for someone Mm. like Jordan Peele to come along 
and, mm. and dive in. How come it takes that long when you've smashed open the door in such a mm. way like this? Just the conversation, you know, just mm. to get people talking about, like, why are, are there no black actors that are surviving to the end of these films, you know, and things like that? <laughs> like, what what's going on, you yeah. know? And why is it taken until, like, the last decade? It's mad. But we'll get there. We'll get there. <laughs> so your initial watch was it? Was it yeah. merely the the race thing that really interested you, or were there other things that like really, you were like? Oh my word, that's just so well done. I think so. Initially, I I really am a big fan of mythology. Anyway, so this kind of urban legend of oh the Candyman, you say his name in the mirror, he'll appear. That kind of intrigues me even more so that it was a specifically a black man, you know, in this kind of urban mythology, right. because usually, you know, you say Bloody Mary or whatever, it's a white female ghost or whatever. So there's not much mythology with the black characters. So that interested me, like, who is the Candyman? What's his deal? Why does he kill people? What is this? So that's initially what drew me into watching the film. But um, I think why I really liked it was that you don't even see Candyman for a, for a while. Like it's very much centered around uh, uh, Helen, I believe yeah. her name is, yeah, yeah. who is a PhD researcher, as am I. <laughs> <laughs> so that was that was pretty cool as well. You know, seeing this woman in academia her struggles against her husband, who is a professor. Like you know, he's doing really well and. So that was quite interesting as well to see that kind of side of it. Um, even more so the intersectionality. Helen is white. One of her best friends is uh, black or mixed race, which is interesting. And even that narrative of the, you know, again, the black secondary kind of character and how she's killed and everything. Yeah. It's a really interesting film with how it like deals with intersectionality. Um, and one I find quite, quite interesting in how it's put together. Well, that's the thing. I mean, you've mentioned her. Um, and if you were going by like the amount of screen time, then this film would be called Helen. You know, yeah. it, it's it's crazy the amount of screen time she gets. And I remember all my friends at the time it was released, they were really sort of saying to me, Paul, you've got you've got to watch this one. This is the one. But I was like, nah. I don't know if this is going to be for me. And it took about a year or so after it had actually been released on VHS before I gave it a go. Um, mm. I don't know what my bugbear was because on the face of it, you know, the story's a Clive Barker story. My favourite film at the time was Hellraiser. Uh, yes. And I was so young, just this little spotty teen, just like, you know, I'm like, oh, just gouging this stuff as, as soon as it would come out and it's the one thing I was just like well I think all my friends like it so let them have that and I'll just try and find something of my own and right. I, I kept that up until the last five years or so when I came to rewatch it thanks to Arrow Video and right. yeah I was blown away but as I say the Virginia Madison the amount of screen time she gets the, as you say like her friend is I, th I think you're right. I think mixed race is it's yeah. never made clear. But no. again, sideline, just like in mm -hmm. the 80s, just like the early 90s. Yeah. And I always had over time seen this one as this is one of those films that is a, a groundbreaking thing for the black culture 
but I didn't mm-hmm. really see that at the end of it. And I, I'm mm-hmm. sorry to just jump straight straight in oh. there with the race, but yeah. I, I at the end of this thing, I, mm-hmm. I was so sort of disappointed that it didn't do that big thing. And I, I, I find it weird when people talk about it retrospectively about what a, a big door smasher it was. And I think right. the reason it is a big door smasher is just the chat that's happened since. There's lots of films you could name check that did employ lo- loads of black actors. Um, mm-hmm. What do you think it is that has been the reason why this one has taken on that mantle, right? That this is a, a film that just champions um, uh, the black man, the black woman. What is it right. do, you, do you see from it? So I think what I find is quite interesting. I completely agree with you in this in the sense of I don't really I didn't really see how people were like, oh, this is a huge thing for you know black culture and da, da, da. because what we essentially see is the white savior complex so many times in the film with Helen, you know, going into yeah. people like you know a stereotypically black area imposing herself there even going into that woman's house where the baby's kidnapped that young black mother and it's almost this this privilege or like in her mind like she deserves to be there she's doing important research and you know this woman should let her in her house Mm -hmm. and that's something I didn't like throughout the film was the white savior complex or I, I don't even know if you can call it white savior but it was just this imposition of the white character in a black space but in her mind she's right she's fine but I think why people think that it's kind of groundbreaking and leave it leaves this legacy is because what in 1968 or 9 we have Night of the Living Dead um first african-american protagonist in a horror i believe with ben uh uh you know playing the the, you know this heroic black guy and everyone's rooting for him right and he's great i believe his name is Dwayne jones um i could be wrong i think think it is yeah um amazing actor everyone's rooting for him and then he's shot dead at the end Mm -hmm. however with Candyman in a kind of weird, subverted way, this black man is given so much power because he's this entity that essentially, he doesn't die, right? He's come back to take revenge. And, you know, I guess some people could find it empowering from that sense. I particularly didn't because it's still, in my mind, reinforcing the stereotype in film of the violent black man, but it's just done in a different way because he's a supernatural entity, but it still reinforces that. I guess if we're looking at character intentions, you can say, yeah, he was lynched or whatever when he was alive and he's he's annoyed. (laughs) It's a revenge story, yeah. Revenge, which I kind of can see. But then in the end, then why not make him a sympathetic character then? Like, make you know, where he realises, okay, no, what I've been doing is wrong. I love Helen and, you know, like she deserves to be free or whatever. They could have done the end in, in a completely different way, but they didn't. He's vengeful and evil until the end and violent. Therefore, is it really groundbreaking? Is it really shattering norms and stereotypes? I don't know. I don't 
it's such a delicate balance to get right and it shouldn't be that's the thing it yeah. just shouldn't be um, right. but I guess at the time even when you were listening to like the American charts black music wasn't just music it was black music you know right. it's it's crazy how far we've come in right. such such little time from then yeah. but at the same time it's just a, a for me especially a tricky subject to, yeah. to to go at again thank you so much for coming on and talking about it <laughs> um okay. i want to mention tony todd here because he's going to be on the front cover right. he's the candy man you know right. and at, at least there is that you know yeah. and i think that has to be the reason why this has got that that legacy going on not only is he in it but he's the anti-hero sort of yeah. thing you know for that person that will champion like a, a pinhead or whatever you've got Candyman right. as well right so I, I get that um but I find it really interesting his performance because he doesn't get a lot of time um, no. what do you what do you feel about Tony Todd in, in this film um I think that he is an incredible actor um the re the when you actually see Candyman right for the first time with his hook and the bloody stump, it literally does sell send chills down your back, because the way he commands the screen, his presence really is an eerie one with the bees and everything. It's absolutely terrifying. I think he absolutely smashed the role, and in that sense, yeah, the film needs to be praised because we have this. Black actor in 1992, you know, completely smashing a role, breaking norms of like, you know, the, the Hollywood film industry, even casting um, black people in films like this. So in that sense, I do get it. He was incredible. He was so spooky. The whole story is creepy because it's one that could be true almost right like you know at school when they're like say bloody mary three times in the mirror and then you get really scared and like you do it and you're paranoid it feels like that like a almost like a modern paranoia and that's what i find interesting and and that legacy does live on with the candy man as this mythical figure and when you say candy man you know the image that comes to your head is is Todd, right like yeah, it, right now with bloody stump with his hook with the bees and it's stuck in cultural imagination and that is groundbreaking i would say that's what makes it groundbreaking i have to agree like yeah. for, for, and I'm, I'm sorry for the massive fans of this film that sort of we've come out of the 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 gate sort of like dissing it a little bit it's not mm. my intention at all i think this is a, a fantastic film um, of it, those things just have to be addressed because I'm, mm -hmm. I'm I myself quite confused like and, mm -hmm. and when I watched uh, I think it was an extra or some of the commentary uh, and I found out that the blocks where they were filming actually had like five different gangs operating and they all needed to be paid off and some of the gang members are on there mm -hmm. uh, and it's just like uh, well I mean that's exploitation yes done as actual exploitation there's no way you can yeah. get around that you know yeah. you're exploiting these people and and you know although it's not commented on just by having it there is a comment you know what I mean so yeah. it, these things that juxtapose um with me whether how much I actually like the film it's really strange because I can see 
over the years why it has this reputation because as you right. said, Tony Todd smashes it. His yes. voice alone is <laughs> yes. so resonant and so creepy. And yes. I, for me, I think the floating scene where he's floating over the top oh, yes. of Helen, it's just terrifying. terrifying. I think what makes it even more interesting as well, diving into intersectionality we've talked about race, class as well, right? right. Huge in this film when Helen and her friends are, you know, they're driving from the suburbs, from this, you know, prominent university to this you know, let's say as it is a ghetto. Yeah. And the the fear, right, of both of them, like, oh, like, are they going to, like, you know, rob us or it's not safe or whatever. And even those class differ differences, it makes the film really interesting because as we know, people still have these perceptions of life outside of the suburbs and these derogatory terms like ghettos which basically in American imagination is an area that is more populated by um, working class black people than any other person. And it really does incite fear in them. And that's an interesting stereotype in itself, right? Just because yeah. you're in an area that's predominantly black or, 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 or a uh, Mexican or whatever, why does that then suddenly mean that you as a white I don't know, female like Helen, right? You instantly feel <laughs> unsafe. I don't know. It's interesting. It's it's really cool how the film's done to highlight these these you know common prejudices. I'd say that that people have, and that is still relevant even now, as well, we know. That's the thing. Even though I'm always thinking of those things whilst watching the film. My favourite thing is when I watch it with anybody, if I watch it with someone else, we talk and we talk afterwards. It explodes discussion. There's not yeah. any, any like 10 minute section of the film where you're not questioning things or where you want to talk to someone else about what you've just seen. It's yeah. It, and there's hardly any films from this time that will resonate in that exact same way. So, yeah. you know, hats off to it. There's a couple of things I just want to say. The first one, have you ever stood in front of a mirror and said Candyman five times? Hell no. <laughs> I'm not tempting fate. I'm good. <laughs> I've never done it either and I never will. There's no way. I'm not tempting fate. I'm, I'm, I'm good. <laughs> Right, I want to mention the ending. So spoilers going ahead. With regards to the to the ending scene, when we get to the pyre, it's all on flames, um, mm. and Helen manages to escape, mm. very burned. And mm. as far as we're aware, Candyman has burned up with everything else, um, mm -hmm. and we see him burning. Um, mm -hmm. He's a ghost, so maybe maybe not. I don't know. It's, it's, I don't know. Yeah, well, it's a bit weird. <laughs> what's your take on the ending? Like, what do you take from it? And did you enjoy that last sting? Do you know why it's really interesting you asking me this? Because I genuinely don't know. So yeah. I think what I didn't like was the vibes that the ending took of Helen as a woman scorned, right? Like um her husband obviously cheating with her with a younger woman and then you know he's kind of upset because Helen's dead or whatever and then she could like you write that ending scene where yeah. she's behind she's a new candy man or woman or whatever 
not quite sure what was going on there. Sure. I didn't like that because that's a whole woman scorned, hysterical woman coming back. To... I didn't like that. I didn't think it needed to be there. Um, so that was a bit strange. And then again, delving into the white savior thing, you know, Helen's funeral, it was just her husband and his new missus, I believe, that are there. And then you have all these black people coming into the funeral and it's like, you know, really? <laughs> yeah. Did she do that much for the black community? It that's what I didn't like. Right. And even Candyman burning, I was like, so he could have been burnt the entire time. So he, he wasn't a ghost or he is a ghost, or is that the only way to kill him? I feel like a lot of things at the ending kind of felt either rushed or maybe I just wasn't getting it. Even Helen as a new candy woman, does like every time you kill a candy man, then do you take on that form? There's a lot of things that I think, yeah, didn't didn't make a lot of sense to me. You've said it, my thoughts, because here here's the thing. It this film goes at great pains to create a law. You know, this is this is how this this works right. and when it's right. wishy-washy at least you can sort of thread things together so they join and you're like okay I, I can go with that and as you say right. a lot of it feels very real to an extent but you're that right. ending it just smashes every, all of it apart it's it, it doesn't it doesn't make sense it leaves you questioning so many things that you've previously watched like right. you just said exactly uh, and I'm really disappointed by that ending but I love the rest of the film so much. So I sort of give it a pass every time I forget yeah. about it. And then I'm like, oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, the effects are great, but oh, yeah. I mean, did, did you like Helen? As yeah, a I, I, I sort of did. I was rooting for her. I wanted to get to the bottom of it. Oddly, I just wanted her to, to hand in a really good piece of work on this <laughs> <laughs> I guess you would too, right? Yeah. Gone to all this trouble. Even like the the death of Helen, like I kind of saw it coming. I think like halfway through the film, I was like, yeah, I, I don't think she's going to survive this. I just had that inclination. But I think what was interesting was the hospital scene where she's obviously in like a, a psych ward or something like yeah. that. She's She can see the Candyman, right? Like it's very real to her. But when they show her the tapes back, there's obviously nothing there. Yeah. Again, really well done before it's time with the take on mental illnesses and stuff, because what is very, very real to some people, right? Like it's very real to them and in their minds but maybe not to us, but that doesn't make it any less real for them. I liked that in a way. Like I liked that kind of, it wasn't a deep discussion of mental illness or anything like that, but the kind of foundations were there and that was interesting. Um, Because was she, you know, did she suffer from mental illness? What, that could be a reading of the film, like someone that became so obsessed with their, their, their work and, and whatever, right? As a PhD student, <laughs> I can feel myself going down that route sometimes because it, it takes a lot of passion, hard work and dedication. Never mind that she was a woman in the 90s in academia, right? So right. I, that that is interesting. I like that. I wish it would have delved into that a little bit more. But I guess what makes the Candyman 
the legacy it is today is there are different readings of the film of Helen of her point of view and maybe those types of films are the best type of films because it's not like the director's right not there right it's up to us as an audience to decide I kind of I like that I'd say yeah I'm gonna back that I as I say it generates so much discussion and it makes me love cinema from the 90s when there's it gets a very bad bad rap the 90s um, <laughs> with horror fans and still does yeah. even though there are like now every year or so there'll be a couple of classics people pick out and then it's it's generally talked about a lot more in the yeah in the sort of movie press but you know this one has lasted its legacy has lasted there were sequels there's a remake yeah. there is yeah. the clear inspiration on Jordan Peele Um, who is like one of the very top directors in horror now at all. Yeah. Um, So, yeah, final question. Yeah. Um, Can you recommend this? Now we've got the remakes and the sequels and and everything else that's uh, with us now, today's climate. Can you recommend this old relic from 92? 100%. I think it's... I think there are certain horror films that just generate this buzz. You just say the name, right? The Shining, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, um, Nightmare on Elm Street, Halloween. Candyman is one of them, 100%. Um, I think it's, to be honest, I didn't think it was as popular as like Texas Chainsaw and films like this, but actually, I don't know. It is very, very popular with the cult people that know about it right it's like a cult Mm -hmm. classic um and i definitely say if you if you haven't watched it and you're making your way through the cult classic list you've got to watch this if you like peel if you want to see his inspiration you have to watch it because for me a part of not apart from night of the living dead right with, with ben as the protagonist then you get Candyman right like it's it's a nice stepping block I think for the I'd say for the I don't know the changes of 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 black characterization in in horror film you start at night of the living dead then you know you have black exploitation Gandra and Hess films like that then you get Candyman in this weird point of history, right? 1992, they say horror was dead at this point. You get Scream maybe a bit before, a bit later. Um, then you get Blair Witch in 1999. But it's situated in an interesting time. And um, of course, People Under the Stairs as well delves with race sure. as well a little bit. But it's just monumental. You can't not watch it. Um, it's the 100% recommendation for me. I'm so glad you said it because <laughs> it's really high in my list. Okay, well, Kaya, thank you so much. Thank you for having me.
And if you're not a fan of Candyman, that's cool. I can dig that. It took me years to just come round and accept it. But one thing that I cannot dispute, and you shouldn't dispute either, is that the music on this thing by Philip Glass, it's phenomenal. It utilised some of the key tropes from the 70s and 80s horror booms, such as the menace of the voice to create this epic, classical stage for the whole thing. Choirs, they're never my favourite thing to hear on a score, because just because, well, it's being done to death, right? And I sit here in 2022 and I look at the movies like uh, The Omen from the 70s and the first Amityville Horror and Candyman, and I see them as these iconic pieces which really invest in choirs. And without that groundwork, I don't think I would have heard something as cool as that ultra-impressive Arrival score by Joe and Johansson. But Candyman, it also crafts this backbone that reaches back as far as the universal horror era. And we're talking about dusty organ motifs that sort of gather up some tricks that were used maybe even as recently as Nightmare on Elm Street. So when you're mixing those sort of elements, one really old and one still quite old for the time, it just hammers home this slightly more contemporary feel because there's nothing else like it. You can just pick it apart like, oh, maybe that's from the 30s. Maybe that's from the 80s. It's so odd to have them combined in that way. It sounds like nothing else. And because of that, all the while, these things just never feel of their time. Because it's borrowing all this crap from all those other places, like Philip Glass, he's scored this timeless piece, I think. It is elegant, and yet it's also a little frazzled at its roots because of all those above influences. It's difficult to comprehend, and and it's pretty fucking good. But all that being said, where can you find Candyman? Well, you can stream this one for free on Sky, Virgin, and Now, uh, and that's in the UK. But in the USA, you can't stream it anywhere for free. Not right now. But there's this fantastic Arrow video Blu-ray that I did mention with my conversation with Kaya. And again, thank you so much to Kaya Palmer for chatting with me about that. Sorry, forgot to mention that. Uh, there's a whole heap of bonus content on that Blu-ray. If you're into physical media, it's one of those fantastic Arrow products. As for podcasts, Scaredy Boy Podcast, they released their take on Candyman in April of this year. And also, let's go back a bit further to Robcast. That's right, Rob. Short for Robert, Robcast. Uh, they present their take on Candyman. And that was in October 2020. And that's it. Off your pop. <laughs> this is Candyman. It only made my number six position. So what the hell made it to number five? When I was 17, this came out. Hello? 17? And this film? 
What an event this was for me at the time. I can't tell you enough. It did leave quite the effect on me. Uh, I'd left school and I had free passes for the cinema down the road. I think I've told you that story many times before. So, of course, I tried my luck to get in. This was an 18 and I managed to see this very much talk about and zeitgeisty film upon its release. It was talked about on TV, in the newspapers, just anywhere you would look, you would see adults talking about this very adult film and when I visited my local video shop on the release day I remember that rows upon rows of the movies were all out with those rented out tags stuck on them and of course massive displays of Sharon Stone looking creepily over Michael Douglas's shoulder. This was a big deal and whilst I think the film was very much a product of its time it's easy to see how a movie like Poison Ivy couldn't compete with this one. This was masterfully filmed and you could see every penny of its $50 million budget. It was all there on the screen. Poison Ivy, on the other hand, with its $3 million budget, it could never compete. And normally this financial stuff, well, it wouldn't bother me at all. But for the erotic thriller genre, it just seems to work. Pump more money in and you're going to get the sheen of gloss that just looks fantastic compared to everything else out there. I wanted to see the opulence of Catherine Trammell's beachside pad. You just got to believe that she was dripped in wealth and aesthetically it was there from her dress sense to the very car she drove. I wanted to smell that cash. None of it would have meant diddly though if Sharon Stone couldn't sell her character. And bloody hell, does she sell Catherine Trammell? From the way she speaks, with the way she uses body language, the confidence in the role, I just think it's outrageous that she didn't receive top billing for this one. When people talk about this film, it's common to say that, well, she was a nobody at the time, and that's not the case. She had decent roles in Action Jackson, Total Recall. She's one of the main stars in a film called Scissors. But Michael Douglas was, for some reason, the king at this time. Well, the king of sexy movies, shall we say. Very, very strange. Anyway, Sharon Stone, she is it for this thing. It's Basic Instinct. Is she a suspect? She's a suspect. You like playing games, don't you? Games are fun. Beyond passion. She was the last person seen with the guy. I didn't kill him. Beyond pleasure. You're in over your head. I like it. Stay away from her! Freeze! Lies an even deadlier instinct. You are out of control, Kern. You'll just fall in love with me. I'm in love with you already, but I'll nail you anyway. Basic Instinct, rated R, starts Friday, March 20th at a theatre near you. And here's your letterbox synopsis. A brutal murder, a brilliant killer, a cop who can't resist the danger. A police detective is in charge of the investigation of a brutal murder, in which a beautiful and seductive woman could be involved now i usually go with mvps here but i just want to mention the two leads and the reason i'm reluctant to say mvps is because there is not much horror content to contend with with both of them but i found a potential corker amongst them so i'm gonna bring it up let's begin with sharon stone her horror film career is pretty bleak uh, for science fiction you might remember a film called Sphere. It was overlong. It was a little unsatisfactory as well. But she was brilliant in the original Total Recall. But when we talk horror though, 
I think she stars in a very unpopular remake of Diabolique. And if you're not happy with that, what about the Blanders Broccoli Cold Creek Manor? That's currently streaming on Disney+. Plus. That one is quite terrible. I've yet to see Scissors, but again... It's not being reviewed all that well. But one thing I can confirm to you that is not very good is the Wes Craven. I know, I know it's Wes Craven, but his film, Deadly Blessing. It's a religious slashery washover that for me, I just feel like Craven is treading water and Sharon Stone, she's just not seizing any opportunities that she's been given here. But for Michael Douglas... It's a bit more interesting. I've not seen Coma, which came out in 1978, and that is based in and around a hospital. I've banged on about it in this podcast. I do love a bit of hospital horror. So fingers crossed it's going to be a decent addition to that subgenre. Uh, He was also in the game, which was definitely horror adjacent, but doesn't count, so I wish I hadn't mentioned it, sorry. And personally, I really disliked the African outback wildlife creeper called The Ghost and the Darkness. I would avoid that as well. But here's the movie that I'm most excited about from the whole lot between both Sharon Stone and Michael Douglas. It's called When Michael Calls. And it's from 1972. And this is what the synopsis reads. A woman begins to receive ominous phone calls from her nephew. Her nephew died 15 years earlier. With each phone call, a family member dies. Will she be the next in line? Now, this one, it definitely looks like a made-for-TV movies. And I simply adore 70s made-for-TV horror. Simple as that. This is the one that I'm really looking forward to from their filmographies. This is at the top of my list. That is When Michael Calls. Now, you may well recognise it. It is, of course, Jerry Goldsmith. And this one was nominated for an Academy Award and for good reason. It's instantly recognisable to me. But you know what? I've seen this movie plenty of times over the years, so I guess that it would be. But I love this little anecdote. Legend has it that director Paul Verhoeven, he rejected several drafts of the score before he okayed these end results to be used. Now, in doing so, I feel that he just pushed Goldsmith slightly out of his comfort zone and it creates this dizzying soundtrack to match the sizzling sexual tensions on the screen. Now, the National Philharmonic Orchestra swirls around at various points as if trying to pin down the contradictions of Catherine's character. It does it with complete confidence and complete control. It's as clever as it is thrilling. There's also a track on here called Catherine and Roxy and it mirrors what's taking place just on the screen just at that time. It frivolously themes their scenes together while not delving into a romantic theme or a fraught scene. It just plays around just like the film does. The strings appear quite aloof at points. They're just not willing to settle down and take a side either way. It's really clever as I said and very very Moorish. Would I recommend this score? Of course I would. 
It's Jerry Goldsmith. But where can you find this movie if you want to watch it? Well, if you haven't watched it already, I didn't spoil any of it there, so you will have an amazing time. In the UK, you can stream it for free, and it's on Studio Canal, Virgin TV Go, and in the USA, it is on DirecTV, Fubo, Showtime. It doesn't cost you anything. It's on there for nout. Uh, but in the USA right now, you can actually buy this thing on 4K UHD. In the UK, we've just got a DVD and a Blu-ray, it looks like. As for podcasts, well, let's end here. For podcasts, we've got Bald Movie Prestige. They have their say in April 2021. And then Girls, Guts and Giallo, which I was actually listening to last night, this very episode. They chatted about Basic Instinct way back on their May 2019 episode. There we go. Basic Instinct. I've not spoiled it. If you've not seen it, you have to. It's brilliant. Welcome back, folks. This is the second part of the Also Rans. This section contains seven horror movies, which are all six out of ten in my eyes, which means they are very good. They're very good. They are, in fact, ace, and they should go on your lists if you haven't seen them already. We're going to begin this lot with Innocent Blood. Now, I've known this front cover for years. I used it as a poster. Uh, way back when for a gig that I put on, I never knew where I pinched the image from. It was the early days of the internet, and now I know. It's a vampire movie with a twist. But before you yawn and you scribble this one off your list, well, this one plays with a gangster plot. And it sort of works, but it also unfortunately derails the film as often as it bolsters an otherwise dry retelling of the vampire lore. Am I selling it? And then, at what would be number 16 in my chart, well, it is Raising Cain. If you think you know what happened... Two moms disappear from the same playground. You're wrong. I want to know what you've done with Amy! If you think you know who did it... It was Bobsy! Stop that! Stop that! Stop it! Think again. Tell them he died! If you think it's only a nightmare... Oh, it's the first dream. Keep dreaming. I know what you're going to do! From Brian De Palma. <laughs> Raising Cain, rated R. I watched the Arrow video presentation of this one, but I did find it hard work in places. Uh, there are dreams within dreams and multiple personalities spread throughout from different points of views and different flashbacks. I think I'm definitely going to have to watch this one again as it has just this huge fan base and I did not get as engaged with it as I was hoping I would but Lithgow of course is highly skilled no matter what personality he presents. But ever so slightly more enjoyable than Raising Cain was The Vagrant and The Vagrant is a surprisingly tight horror comedy starring Bill Paxton. He is magnetising in this lead role of Graham, who is convinced that this homeless guy wants to destroy his whole life. 
And hear this, I even laughed one time during this film. I laughed. That's a very good sign, tell you that much. You can currently watch The Vagrant on YouTube, but I couldn't find it anywhere else. And the picture quality is not great. But even better still is another horror comedy, this time from director Peter Hyams. He directed Running Scared, he directed The Relic, Capricorn One, Outland with Sean Connery, End of Days with Arnold Schwarzenegger, and 2010, also Time Cop. Yeah, at number 14, I've placed Stay Tuned. And this is what the letterbox synopsis says about Stay Tuned. Salesman Roy Nabel spends all his free time watching television to the exasperation of his wife, Helen. One day, TV salesman Spike convinces Roy to buy a satellite dish offering 666 channels. The new additions to Roy's home entertainment system sucks him and Helen into Hellvision, a realm run by Spike, who is an emissary of Satan. For 24 hours, the couple must survive devilish parodies of TV programs if they want to return to reality alive. Now, even though this one was the very definition of light entertainment, I had a great time of it. It won't have your side splitting. It won't scare you. But it feels like a family throwback to the 80s, like big hitter summer blockbuster type things. Just done on a smaller B-movie budget. I think it's definitely worth your time. Also worth your time is The Hand That Rocks the Cradle. And I guess this is now the biggest one on my little list here. It's a classic tale of the obsessive other, in inverted commas, woman uh, that is played by Rebecca de Mornay in this one. And she weaves her way into a family's affections with sinister ulterior motives in mind. But better than that, is Sleepwalkers, which I now think must be Mick Garris's most pervy film. There's a load of incest in it, there is a rubbing joke which is very sexually charged, it all fizzes off the screen, it's very pervy, it's very, very pervy. Also, I'd like to just mention it is cocaine-era Stephen King, uh, so you know now whether you're just going to love this thing or not. This is a batshit, shape-shifting, nutballer of a film, Maybe you're going to hate it. Maybe you're going to love it. I I thought it was rather delightful. I tracked down the Eureka Blu-ray of it and I dug in. And finally, just missing out on a top 10 placing, it is the fucking mental Hellraiser 3. In Hellraiser 1, Clive Barker showed you his vision of a private hell. In Hellraiser 2, he took you on a journey inside the Inferno. Now, the terror returns in mankind's final confrontation with evil. And this time, it's going to be Hell on Earth.
real soft spot for this one yes it is the moment that the franchise jumped the shark peter atkins who wrote hellraiser 2 and wishmaster he had a hand in this one as well as someone called tony randall so i felt comfortable that it was least in competent hands but the decisions made they range from masterful with pinhead blaspheming at the church altar to dated where ah, just at the moment of conception the cd cenobite come on now, I've seen this one countless times, and I'll continue to do so until the day I perish. If you've never given it a go, step up to the plate. This one is bonkers and brilliant and bullshit, all at the same time. And that is the final part of the also ran. So, we're going to get back now to the horror top 10. I think now it is time for my number four pick. Army of Darkness is next. Has a sequel ever confused audiences as much as Army of Darkness did? I'm thinking maybe The Rise of Skywalker, but that was a maybe. Just because it was so unsatisfactory and splattered together like just a heap of junk that it said it was never going to be, I sat there in the cinema absolutely confused, absolutely hating my life choices watching that mess. But with the third Evil Dead movie, it doesn't really have that problem. Most of the established fan base loved it, and they still do. It would seem to be the issue, at the time of release anyway, that for the neutral moviegoer, nobody knew what the hell this film actually was. Anybody that's seen the making of documentary with this one knows that the studio didn't really care about what the Evil Dead franchise was or could be or previously had been. In fact, they'd actually promoted the film simply to avoid any link with it. It's bizarre. The deal to get this made was sort of just this add-on for Sam Raimi with Universal Pictures if Darkman became a success. And Darkman did become a success. So Army of Darkness was greenlit. And saying all this, over the years, it's gained a ton of new fans and it regularly, retrospectively gets reviewed in a positive light. Even if the miniature ash has technical effects that haven't aged that well and the Army of Darkness team would have really hoped it did a lot better than what it did with regards to those effects, I find it really difficult to hold those scenes against it, but I will admit they're a real struggle to get through today. And I'll tell you why, because this is Army of Darkness. <laughs> 
age of darkness. May God have mercy upon your souls. Something's wrong. Something's amiss. And a time of evil. You shall die! When the world needed a hero. The swallow us all. And it die! What it got was him. Groovy. You know your shoelace is untied. He's a 20th century guy. For that arrogance, I shall see you dead. Trapped in the Middle Ages. All right, you primitive screwheads, listen up. This is my boomstick. Now, let's talk about how I get back home. Foretold by a mystical book. Within its pages are passages that can send you back to your time. Forewarned by a wise man. You must recite the words, Klaatu, Berata, Niktu. I got it, I got it. Fulfilled by a wise guy. Klaatu, Berata, when the army spoke the words, the army of the dead awoke. <coughs> now, he's got a date. Give me some sugar, baby. Sheila! With the army of darkness. You found me beautiful once. Honey, you got real ugly. And here is your letterbox synopsis. Trapped in time, surrounded by evil, low on gas. A man is accidentally transported to 1300 AD, where he must battle an army of the dead and retrieve the Necronomicon so he can return home. So we are going to do an MVP, and I do know that it's a little bit redundant with a film as massive as Army of Darkness, but I do get to recommend you a film that you may still not know. So step up to the plate, Sam Raimi. Yes, we all know Evil Dead 1 and 2. Plus, even though it did split audiences somewhat, most have seen Drag Me to Hell. But have you seen Sam Raimi's film The Gift? It came out in the year 2000 and stars Kate Blanchett. And Kate plays a clairvoyant. And this one is less scary and more of a slow burn character study. And it proved to me that Raimi is a great director of actors and also of drama. And when you think of his name, you don't think of that. You just don't. When I mention Raimi, I will think of things like his inventiveness to get those effects uh, going through the woods, you know, and things like that. Those mad cuts, the controlled anarchy on the screen. That's what I think of. Not so with the gift. The supernatural element here is understated and it's underplayed and it makes the film all that more moving when Blanchett sort of reluctantly shows her hand. Personally, I think it's great. I think you need to see it. And if it sounds even remotely interesting to you, then just pop it at the higher reaches of your list. I do recommend it. mentioned Joseph DeLuca before with the scores of Evil Dead and also Evil Dead 2 both in our 1981 episode and also the 1987 big hitter and now we've got to 1992 everything is much the same except you have to add 
this wealth of fantasy in it. There are so many fantastical elements to this thing. Just think of castles, kings, queens, that sort of thing. If you think about splicing that with those first two Evil Dead soundtracks, that's where we're at right now. And where can you stream for free Army of Darkness? Well, in the UK, you can't. But in the USA, you can. It's available on Max Go to stream for free, and that's it. Of course, you can rent it from all your favourite places, and it is still available, at least on DVD. And finally, we're going to be covering the podcasts here, and I'm going to recommend two, as I usually would. Uh, the first one I'm going to do is Film Alchemist. They covered Army of Darkness on the 30th of October 2020. And I also am going to do a new one, B Bin Horror. That's B for Bravo, Bin for uh, Dustbin, Horror as in that's a sort of genre. <laughs> it's Army of Darkness being covered. And that's from really recently. That's 2022 in March. That is B Bin Horror. Stoker's Dracula. This is the one that I first saw at Dreamland Cinema in Margate on the first week of its UK release. The theatre was packed. It was full of young adults just like myself. I would say that there was probably a handful of people younger than the actual 18 years of age you had to be to get in. Uh, and I imagine most were there just to see Winona or Keanu. I personally remember it just being this wonderful thing to watch. It was so operatic, it was so long, it felt so huge and so important to me at the time. I think you only get a few of those films in your life and, and history hasn't painted it in such a kind way as I felt then, but I still think this is an epic, epic film. There was so much in-camera trickery, the mice running along upside down, that's just one example. I mean, there were loads of on-screen, in-screen effects. And Keanu's performance, it is one of those so bad it's good performances. He's got that terrible English accent, and of course Gary Oldman does actually act rings around him. Uh, but the thing is, nobody dislikes Keanu. Nobody dislikes him because he's just such a cool guy. And you know what? When I watch this movie, I've actually got no problem watching him at all. There are so many movies that I watch every single week, without a doubt, where Keanu would be able to act rings around them. I cannot hold that against this movie. But there is a thing that niggles at me. I mean, why does Keanu not react to any of the really weird shit that's happening? Dracula crawling down walls, ink that floats upwards. He just doesn't seem phased by it at all. And I often wonder to myself, was that actually a direction from Francis Ford Coppola? Did he actually say, don't express any emotions whatsoever? Did he do that? Did he stitch up Keanu Reeves? What else can I say? Um, well, the orgy scene. That's really delving into 70s exploitation. 
it's horror for sure, but for me, really, it is a massive love story. Winona is the key as she plays Mina. And let me say this again, because I do think it's important. It is, to me, a love story. When she is actually turning, it's another epic piece of cinema. It's so well-crafted. The score just brings the whole thing to life. Whew, it's immense. And of course, as well as all the above, I've got to mention again Gary Oldman. Just a force of nature. It's such a fantastic performance. And the costume department, they've just given him such an unusual dress compared to the other Dracula movies. Uh, not like Bella Lugosi, not like Christopher Lee, with all the capes and whatnot. In fact, when I think about this now, I've definitely made my mind up. Gary Oldman, he is my favourite Dracula. And just don't get me started about that shadow puppet opening, the introduction thing which points to him being Vlad the Impaler, and how that's not actually what should be happening with Dracula. I'm cool with anything. But when you boil it all down, I just think this is a film lover's film. This is Bram Stoker's Dracula. Here occurred the frightening and shocking history of Prince Dracula and the woman he loved. I have crossed oceans of time to find you. Yeah. Dracul. There is a sinister, darker side to him. I find irresistible. I have never met any man with such a passion for life. He is unlike any man. What are you? Vampires do exist. This one we fight, this one we face can take on many forms. He is both young and old. He can appear as mist, as vapor, as the fog. And he can vanish at will. The power of his evil desire has no end. And here's your letterbox synopsis. Love never dies. When Dracula leaves a captive Jonathan Harker and Transylvania for London in search of Mina Harker, the reincarnation of Dracula's long-dead wife, Elizabeth, obsessed vampire hunter Dr. Van Helsing sets out to end the madness. And normally here I give you an MVP, but I'm not going to do that. What I'm going to say is this. This 1992 episode was already stacked to bits, but I wanted to reach out to Dr. Lauren Jane Barnett. She came on the show back on our 2016 Big Hitter episode and she did a piece about The Conjuring 2. I discovered her myself when I happened upon that fantastic podcast she does. It's called London Horror Movie Club. Her personal takes on London-centric horror movies are just full of the exact type of analysis that I love. Now, a couple of weeks back, I saw that she was releasing this book uh, and it's coming out in October. And as well as pre-ordering it myself in a heartbeat, I actually asked her for her thoughts on Bram Stoker's Dracula for the show because there are actually a lot of parts of it set in London. 
but I also just wanted to give you a lot of heads up about this book. I got so, so excited. It comes out really, really soon now. This comes out in the very beginning of October, and I think the book comes out a bit later on, but still October. I'm going to read you some blurb about it, and I hope it excites you as much as it does me. I live pretty close to London, and I just can't wait to get this thing in my hands. It is called Death Lines, Walking London's Horror History. Yeah, so just type that into Google or Amazon, get your orders in. As I say, it's available late October 2022. And this is the first walking guide to London's role in the evolution of horror cinema. It's inspired by the city's dark histories and labyrinthian architectures. Right, here we go. I'm going to hit some music and I'm going to run you through the blurb. This isn't a paid advert or anything like this. I just want to pop this in your ear rolls. And if this is anything of interest to you, I advise just to pre-order that thing ASAP. Deathlines has eight walks that lead you on a series of richly researched, yet undeniably chilling tours through Chelsea, Notting Hill, Westminster, Bloomsbury, Covent Garden and the East End, along the haunted banks of the River Thames and down into the depths of the London Underground Railway. Also, each tour weaves together London's stories and takes the reader to a magnificent, eerie and sometimes disconcertingly ordinary corner of the city. Unearthing the literature, the legends and history behind classics like Peeping Tom, An American Werewolf in London and lesser known works such as the mind control melodrama of the sorcerers which as a side note we covered here on a year in horror just a couple of months ago on our 1967 big hitter episode uh, Giorgio, Britain's answer to Godzilla, the tube terror death line and Bela Lugosi's mesmeric vehicle the dark eyes of London tinged with humour, social critique and more than a few scares, Deathlines delights in revealing the hidden and often surprising relationship between the city and the dark cinematic visions it has evoked. Whether you read it on the streets or from the comfort of the grave, Deathlines is a treat for all cinephiles, for horror fans and for lovers of London lore. Now, Claire and myself, as I say, we go to London a lot and I can't wait just to visit it again with all this knowledge in my bag can't wait so with all this being said here's lauren jane barnett's thoughts on bram stoker's dracula london has long been a home for horror the great writers of gothic novels lived here or set their eerie tales in the city's labyrinth of streets. Some of their monsters were born from the city, and others pursued it. The great Gothic vampire, Dracula, may have been from Transylvania, but his goal was to take over London. In the 1880s, when the book was written, London was the center of an empire, and so the perfect outpost from which you could take over the world. It was also filled with immigrants, making it easy for Dracula to slip in and hide. But the city itself also suited monsters. It was the home of Jack the Ripper, Bedlam Asylum, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, and it even had its own native ghosts. 
Though London was central to the book, Dracula, only a handful of movies have sent the villain there. It even took Hammer a few years to do so. But in 1992, a film came out where Dracula not only returned to London, but he seemed to be able to work the city, as though they shared some deep, horrifying connection. I'm speaking of Francis Ford Coppola's romantic horror film, Bram Stoker's Dracula, and I'm excited for the chance to speak about it in this episode of A Year in Horror. For those unfamiliar, the film is, as the title suggests, an adaptation of Stoker's gothic novel, in which Count Dracula comes to England to be reunited with the incarnation of his long-dead wife. This mysterious wife is in fact Mina, the fiancée of John Harker, whom Dracula lures into his castle and kidnaps, and then heads to London in a trail of death, demonic forces, and destruction in his desire for Mina. The film shifts the focus onto Dracula and his quest for love rather than the original story in which John Harker and Van Helsing team up as forces for good, fighting the purely evil Dracula. This love story made the film unique, and it was certainly at the forefront of the advertising for the film, but how well does it stand up as a horror film? When Bram Stoker's Dracula came out in 1992, director Francis Ford Coppola had an arguably unfair reputation for high-budget disappointment, so many people in the industry didn't really expect much of the film, and it was even dubbed Bonfire of the Vampires. It was also a departure from mainstream horror movies that were popular at the time, so it was a real risk in terms of subject matter. You have to remember this was the early 90s, so at this point slasher films had been done and overdone, and people had very strong expectations in that direction. Think 80s B-movies or slashers, low on plot, high on murder. The gothic horror film, like Dracula, had been long dead. It was seen as cliché and even a bit boring basically since the 1970s. In fact, a lack of interest in gothic horror films is part of why Hammer Films really struggled after the 70s and eventually closed its doors. So really, Coppola's grasping on the gothic horror at the time was a bit of a risk. Despite the odds against it, the film was critically well-received, and it went on to win three Academy Awards for costuming, sound editing, and makeup. A big draw for the film, and certainly one of the film's advantages, were the actors. Gary Oldman as Dracula is the lead and central driver of the film, and he's simply amazing. I should confess, I am a huge fan of Gary Oldman. I have loved him since I saw The Fifth Element. But this film shows how great his range is. It really creates a character that's versatile, but also has a really strong impact on the viewer. That, I think, is a true testament to his skill, that in one scene you'll find him physically disgusting, and then in another you'll find him alluring and attractive. If you haven't seen the film and you're a fan of Gary Oldman, you will really enjoy his performance. I think it's definitely one of his best. He's very talented, and this is an early example of how great and versatile an actor he is. The rest of the cast is essentially an ensemble, but standing out from that is, of course, Winona Ryder's character, Mina, because she's the love interest of Dracula, and then her boyfriend, fiancé, and then husband, John Harker, played by Keanu Reeves. When talking about this film, Winona Ryder and Keanu Reeves are often talked about together. A consistent criticism I've heard of the film is about casting them because both play their characters in an understated, and some people have used the term wooden, way. I don't completely disagree with this. There are certainly moments that feel underplayed and wooden, 
But while some people find it distracting, this acting or casting choice is one of the elements that's taken directly from the novel, so I have a certain amount of respect for it. Mina in the novel is the picture of muted innocence, and the whole point of her is to contrast her with her friend Lucy. Both are presented as cliche options for a woman in the Victorian era. Lucy, with her flirtation and admirers, is the sinner, the prostitute, and Mina, virtuous, very quiet, led by her husband, is basically the saint or the virgin. And in the film, they also emphasize this. Lucy is very highly sexualized and very active and very vibrant. She even has bright red hair. Mina is very much emphasized in her virginity in the film up until Dracula seduces her and her innocence is a huge part of it. All of her costumes are much more tightly presented. Her hair is more tightly done. So you do need her to be a bit more dull and, and I think it works in the film. Kina Reeves is similarly supposed to be very milquetoast, conservative, in contrast in the book to Dracula. If you think about the book, Harker is boring and plain to the extreme. The book opens with Harker's diary description of various train lines and timetables. This is not a riveting man, and he needs to be dull because he is the contrast to all that is more vibrant, more emotional, more visceral, and more bodily about Dracula, and that translates even into the film. Dracula is sin, whereas Harker is virtue. You need this contrast, and so if Gary Oldman's character is going to be seductive and interesting and emotional and let some emotion out of his face, you really have to rein back Harker and make sure he doesn't. Of course, all that said, the other thing to talk about with these two characters is their British accents. Both have weaker accents. Winona Ryder's is a little bit inconsistent and a little bit muted, and of course everyone knows that Kino Reeves had a, well, a, a, a very inconsistent and shall we say less appropriate British accent. I believe he's been nominated on a list of the poorest British accents, and I can understand it. It can be a little bit distracting, and in some moments he loses his accent, and that can be slightly frustrating. So that may not help an argument for these characters otherwise being more muted, because the strong thing you'll think about then is their accent. John and Mina, whatever you think about them, though, don't detract from the stellar supporting cast. Anthony Hopkins is grand in it. And you also see some very talented people surrounding Lucy, including Richard Grant, who plays uh, one of the boyfriends and a sort of drug-addicted psychologist. Also, near Lucy, you have Carrie Elwes. He's excellent as being the sort of pretty boy with no sense. Another highlight is Tom Waits. He is eerie and grotesque as Dracula's mentally unbalanced minion. It's a fantastic part and it requires quite a lot because very often he's alone or with only one other person, so he needs to carry those scenes and he absolutely does. And that naturally brings us to the question of how this movie stands as a horror film, because no matter how strong an actor you have, if the film itself doesn't scare you, doesn't make you creeped out, doesn't give you that horror sense, it, it falls short as a horror film. This film's more likely to track well with fans of old, and by that I mean pre-1970s horror, because the film's really a love letter to those classic older horror movies. The first most obvious thing when you watch it is how vivid the color and how very carefully thought out the color is, and you get these amazing lurid reds, and you think immediately Eastman color. So there's a bit of a visual homage there. You also have The Old Dark House, which harkens back all the way through the universal horror films and even into some of the silence, think London after midnight. There are also more sort of direct references or, or at least sort of links to older horror films. There's a line in the film, I never drink wine, and that's from 1931 Dracula, where obviously the implication is he drinks 
blood. Harker's carriage ride to Dracula's castle was inspired by a similar scene in the 1960 horror Black Sunday. And then there's also something about seeing the wolf Dracula, particularly when the camera sees from his, the werewolf's perspective as it comes up to the house and moves through the grounds. It's very reminiscent of American Werewolf in London and other horror films, but I thought of that one because it was only sort of a decade before. So I think people who are fans of older horror movies might get quite a lot out of seeing this movie, maybe even more than people who don't know about all that background. Alongside these references, there are also different layers of horror scattered throughout the film. There are some really good moments of the weird. For example, John Harker has a scene where he's being seduced by female vampires early in the film, and it's absolutely supposed to be weird, surreal, almost even psychedelic. It's very strange, but in that way, unsettling. They do particularly great work with Dracula's shadow. This might be one of my favorite aspects of the horror film. The shadow sort of has a life of its own. You see that very early on. I'll, I'll talk about it, that scene a little bit later. But it's able to, as it reaches across, move objects, wilt flowers. It even feeds off Lucy's blood. So the shadow is in some ways a controlled entity that has a life of its own. There are also a handful of jump scares. Dracula, for example, moves around quite a lot. And there's a particularly good one with the wolf attack on Lucy, where it comes to an end with this huge crashing wave of blood, which reminded me of The Shining. And on that note, there are some really strong special effects, the kind of thing you might expect from sort of good horror, well-funded well horror, including people crawling on the walls, lots of sprays of blood. The werewolf is incredibly creepy. This is a, a feat of sort of makeup. He does seem like a wolf man. They do that very well. There's human aspects to the face. It makes it very uncanny and very disturbing to see. It's It's almost a sort of more upsetting version of the werewolf that you would see in things like American Werewolf in London. And there is also, of course, that particularly intense staking scene. So anybody who's just looking for buckets of blood, you absolutely will get them. But on balance, the film doesn't hold a continued sense of dread or mounting horror. These horror moments I'm talking about are definitely scattered throughout, but they seem isolated almost, or, or there's a jarring sense of them being disconnected because the sting's taken out of them when the next scene is a much slower pace. It's not to say that the horror scenes aren't good, well done, scary, classic, but I don't think they're as strong strung together. More generally, though, as a movie, this film is beautifully directed and shot. It's filled with a great sense of time and place. And part of why I enjoy this movie is that Coppola really captures the importance of London in the book and translates it into the visual magic of the city on film. The movie is, I think, does this so well that several scenes are in my upcoming book, Deathlines, for exactly that reason. You can tell even early on in the film that London is essential to Dracula's plan. There's a scene where his shadow uh, sort of attacks Harker. So both of them are sitting in Dracula's castle and Harker's finishing the paperwork on selling him Carfax Abbey. And as they talk, there's a map of London behind them. It's there because Dracula's buying houses throughout the city, essentially kind of colonizing different areas of London. But as they discuss this, Dracula's shadow, moving on its own, starts to attack Harper. And as it does, it reaches across London. And then at the very end of the scene, it swoops up London with a swoop of its cape. He completely engulfs London. And you get that great foreshadowing that that's what he's supposed to be doing. He's taking over London. 
that's really a recollection back to the book, which is what his original goal is, but you immediately get the sense that London's going to be important. And so then when he actually arrives in London, you get this really great, vivid, visual capturing of London at the time. And the detail with which they present London and the scenes that are set in London really show how central it is to Dracula's plan, and it also sets the mood, because of course, when you think of Victorian London, you immediately get the Gothic atmosphere, and they do a great job of getting Victorian London, the Gothic London, right, you know, gas lamps, cobbled streets, things you've been seeing since the 1927 silent film The Lodger. Coppola's also really done his homework on London at the time, and you see this in particular in the scene where Dracula and Mina meet on the streets of London, and then they go to a demonstration of, of film. So this is actually shot on an outdoor lot in California. It's all set pieces, but the interaction and the actual going to see a demonstration of, of the very first films is based on a real historic event. In 1896, at the Royal Polytechnic Institute, the Lumiere brothers first exhibited the new technology of film, and they did this by displaying it and allowing people to come and see it almost like a sideshow, you'd buy tickets, and that's exactly what Mina and Dracula do. There's also a nice parallel between the concept of cinema and Mina and Dracula's darted glances and their unspoken moments. It's the lure and seduction of silent film in these seductive, silent moments between them. Another much briefer Great London reference is the London Zoo. So as Dracula crosses the channel, there's this huge storm and we, we cut to a gate, the gate of London Zoo in the pouring rain and you hear these animals cry out. It's, it's a very eerie and, and in fact sort of creepy scene. And then we see a wolf escape the zoo and the wolf becomes a sort of useful companion for Dracula. But that moment's also a great horror Easter egg because the wolves of London Zoo appear in other horror movies. The first one was the 1930s film Werewolf of London, where again, the wolves of the zoo sort of are supposed to escape. And then much later in the 1981 American Werewolf in London, David wakes in the cage alongside the other wolves. So the London Zoo has these other horror moments, in particular London wolves. So the London Zoo is a quick moment, but it's a great long-term horror reference. And the other fun London reference in this is, of course, the asylum. Though it isn't named, with its dingy prison-like conditions and questionable practices, it's very clear that the asylum in Dracula, both the book and the movie, is based on Beth Elm Hospital, better known as Bedlam. The horrors of being a patient at Bedlam inspired other horror movies, including one called Bedlam, but both the film and Dracula novel are calling on that infamous hospital at a time when it was supposedly at its worst, so you're expecting there to be kind of extremes and really uh, it gives its own gothic frightening atmosphere because it's known for pain and brutality. And of course, it reminds you that London is this city where people are, are already being tortured in the name of science. People are already at the hands of others, not just Dracula, in London. Indeed, throughout the film, Dracula is able to sort of use London. He works with the city to help his plan to seduce Mina. He hides in the crowds to get away from John Harker. He uses restaurants, streets, sideshows, and even the animals of London to bring Mina to him and to cultivate their affection. Everything about London conspires to help Dracula. And I think in some ways it feels like Dracula is meant to be in London. One of the things I loved about writing and researching Deathlines was I was trying to understand what is it about London that lends itself to horror. 
And of course, there are so many things. I've even mentioned it a bit already. There's this great history. There's all this interesting literature. There's a lot of diversity for directors to draw on. But if I'm 100% honest, there's also something ephemeral, something I can't really explain, but I can feel it. It made London feel like it was the right setting for evil, and so many of the films do that, and I think this film does it very well. You get that same sensation or instinct that London's right for these kind of monsters. This is where, of course, Dracula would go. And so when you watch it, you see, you feel that horror is in London's blood. So having now talked about a lot of different aspects of the film, would I recommend it? The honest answer is yes, but not to everyone. This is not a film without its flaws, and I have made sure I've, I've tried to talk about them. Uh, I mentioned pacing, and I really think a huge part of that is that the film's a bit too long. I think a good strong edit, some tightening of the film, will make it feel more even, more engaging. I, of course, also mentioned the issue of sort of British accents, and there's some questions for you personally to decide whether you would watch it because of the casting choices. And finally, something I haven't mentioned is that for a film called Bram Stoker's Dracula, it definitely picks and chooses what it takes from the book. Though in many small ways it's very faithful, more so than other films, the heart of this film is romance, and that Dracula is this man who's desperately in love, who you can almost sympathize with. Both of those ideas are completely absent from the book. I don't mind this. I suspect my taste is generally felt because there is a desire for sexy vampires, romance vampires at the moment, so maybe other people won't care about this as well, but it's worth mentioning because mainstream Dracula films and books are very different in this respect. Dracula is definitely more of a lover, and so if you, like me, tend to prefer non-romantic movies, this might be a harder sell for you. But for all of those small things, I feel I can recommend it certainly to fans of older horror movies. If you like Hammer and Amicus films, you can handle the slower pace. If you're somebody who does like romance horror genre, definitely I think you'd enjoy it. If you're somebody who can handle having, a, you know, an imperfect horror movie but that has a lot of interesting things to see, to watch, and some really good moments, I think you'll enjoy it. But if your horror movies are the really high-octane horror movies, you probably won't find this as satisfying, so I may not recommend it to you. As for me, it isn't in my top 10, but I do have a real affection for Bram Stoker's Dracula because it's beautiful to look at, and it has great visual effects, and it captures some of that magic of London horror. But most of all, because Coppola shows a great respect for the generations of horror that came before it, and he did so at a time when horror really had, had a struggle going on after the big slasher movement. It shows, and maybe even reminded people, that there is so much to love about the horror film. And on that note, thank you for listening. It's been a pleasure to talk about this rather unusual London horror film. I'm Lauren Barnett, and you're listening to A Year in Horror. Thank you so much to Lauren Jane Barnett. She put this one together for us at the last minute's notice for a year in horror. We were going to have just a regular chat, but due to me having such a full schedule, when we missed our aligned date, I just couldn't rebook it. So she did this instead. As you just heard, amazing stuff. Thank you again, Lauren. But 
I hear you say, what is that rather wonderful score that you're playing? Well, let me enlighten you. That is a snippet from the soundtrack of Bram Stoker's Dracula and it was composed by Wozczek Keeler. This thing is just as rich and all-encompassing as the movie is. It's a huge piece. It's so grand in its execution. I can't even fathom how much it would have cost to put the thing together. There is a full orchestra here which leans really heavily into classic Hollywood and that sort of era and beyond. I just wish I had the booklet, I had the actual thing so I could tell you which actual instruments weren't utilised because I can tell you there were way more that were than weren't. It runs for a total of 55 minutes and when you finish it and you just sit back and think, hmm, that was something, it just feels like Keeler left not one opportunity unchecked, not one stone unturned. Before I go on, I can hear so many birds going mental outside. The windows have to be open. I'm actually recording this during that massive heat wave, and oh, it's killing me. Now, back to the soundtrack. And just like the film, this is as romantic as it is horrific as well. And just listen to the end credits for the evidence of that. My favourite thing about it, though, is when the traditional feel of the romantic strings, they're just in full flow, they get juxtaposed more often than not with that lower gothic and heartbreaking sort of melodrama. The strings are, are really deep all of a sudden. Those more malevolent parts, such as on Love Eternal, that's where it really, really picks up for me. But I would say as a caveat, if you're here for something that sounds fresh and original and maybe breaks the mould of what came before it, then just look elsewhere. This is a traditional horror score, as you would find on any Hammer horror production. It's not reinventing the wheel, but it's making sure that the wheels are the best on the block. And where can you watch this film? Well, in the UK, you can stream it for free on Yup! and Virgin TV Go. And if you happen to live in the USA, then it's just on Yup! It's still available as a DVD and Blu-ray, of course, and you can get it pretty cheap. You know what to do. As for podcasting, well, there are a couple here, but please be aware that I haven't actually listened to either of them yet. Uh, they're just on my phone awaiting for that fateful day that I dig in. So we're going to start with my first recommendation, and that is The Blood Buddies. They had their say on Bram Stoker's Dracula in July of 2019. And then for something a little bit more recent, why not try out the VHS Strikes Back? That was from February of this year, 2022. And that is my number three smash hit. It's 1992's Bram Stoker's Dracula. <laughs> 